Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at six short verses, verses 1 to 6 together. And in God's providence, we hope to set it in its context, and we hope to hear from God by the right interpretation of His Word this morning. It is our habit to go through books of the Bible consecutively so that we get the, the whole message and not just part of it. And so we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 because I have previously preached through the whole of 1 Corinthians, all 16 chapters, as well as the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians. However, we've been at a bit of a break, and so I'll probably do a little bit of review about the book so that we can kind of get set back in. So if you're newer with us today, we welcome you. It's a good Sunday to be here because we'll do a little bit of refresh and review uh, that way. Now, just before we read the text, I want to give you a sense of the theme of the text so that we're together for this. There is an English idiom about tone and tenor. Perhaps you've heard it before. Sometimes we're admonished by the use of this idiom by someone that we know. Be careful to watch your tone and tenor. Now, perhaps you've heard that, and maybe you know what it means, or maybe you're a little unclear what it means. I did a little bit of research this week. Tone and tenor, at least according to the internet, and we all know the internet can't be wrong, uh, but tone and tenor, when someone says, watch your tone and tenor, uh, that means or refers to an attitude, uh, a posture that is perceived by your audience. That's the tone and tenor. What does the audience perceive of you? Um, the, the tenor would be sort of like saying the right things, and the tone would be saying things the right way. So tone and tenor, tone and tenor. Uh, the, 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 the tenor would be part and parcel for, uh, for an intelligence quotient, and the tone would be part and parcel for like an emotional quotient, if you want to do some, some uh, kind of terms there for IQ, EQ type of stuff. Uh, the, the tenor is what you say, the tone is how you say it. The tenor is what you say, the tone is how you say it. Now, I'll pose a question this morning. Do you believe that the Spirit of the living God is concern, concerned with your tone or with your tenor? It's a trick question. The answer is neither only, it's option C, one of my favorite ones on multiple choice tests when I was in school, you know the old all of the above? That's it. They tricked me when they threw the none of the aboves in there. I wasn't quite quick enough for that. But the all of the above, I like to click that button. That seemed to work for me. It's all of the above. God is not simply concerned with your tone, but also with your tenor. And so a sentence that will encapsulate the sermon this morning, if you would like to write it down, I think it will help you. It's a short sentence. It goes like this. A soft tone, a hard tenor, and a house to be built by God. If you need a verb, we have, need to have. A soft tone, a hard tenor, and a house to be built by God. So that's going to be our framing for our text this morning. Number one, a soft tone. Number two, a hard tenor, and three, a house to be built by God. Soft tone, hard tenor, house to be built by uh, God. I want to read now the text for today from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. It says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. 
I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk according, uh, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds or to demolish strongholds, to demolish fortifications. Could be how your translation states it. To destroy strongholds. Verse five: We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Every bit of lofty logic raised against the knowledge of God, we destroy. And take every thought captive, or some of your translations may say, uh, take every thought prisoner. Prisoner, captive, same concept. Take every thought captive for why? Why do we do, why do we take every thought captive? The purpose there is the infinitive to Obey Christ. So who builds the house? Christ. The Lord builds the house, right? Verse 6. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Interesting phrasing. So we're pivoting here in the book of 2 Corinthians from the majority that were repentant and were living the way that the Word had instructed the Corinthians to live. And in chapter 10 through 13, we're shifting over to some comments that are directed toward the minority that were unrepentant and unresponsive to the message of the gospel as Paul was meeting it out to the Corinthian church. Uh, So in thinking of it this way, with that pivot from chapter 9 to chapter 10, It's very important for you to get your mind around that because he's going to say things that on the surface might seem to be a little bit different than what he was saying earlier in the book. And the reason for that is because come chapter 10, he's now talking specifically about those that are seeking to undermine the message of his ministry. And just a quick reread of these verses, especially in the top part, if you think of it in that framing lens, you can hear what he's interacting with. The Apostle Paul had planted this church and left it to plant other churches in the region, and there was a leadership vacuum, apparently, that neither Timothy nor Titus could fill. And the problem at this church is there are leaders that have come up in the church that, in fact, do not carry the gospel message as was delivered, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And they're taking aim at Paul while he is away. And one of their arguments, it seems their main argument is, he writes with an authority that he doesn't speak with once he's here. He's all talk and no show. And so they seem to be trying to kind of kind of kneecap Paul's ministry in AD 55 or so with this. And so Paul has, has been interacting with Titus, and he sent a tearful letter to them. Most of the church responded well to it. Titus and Paul have talked again, and then this letter was delivered as a result of that talk, and yet there is still a minority of these false teachers, or at least contrarians, that are causing problem with the gospel message from Paul. So listen, with that framing lens, listen to these verses again. Paul writes reflectively in the first person, reflexively, I, Paul, myself entreat you. I urge you. By the meekness and humbleness of Christ, we'll get to that in a moment, I who am humble when I'm face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. You see, he's interacting with these, these contrarians, these opponents that are saying that he's different when he's away than when he's there. And, and they're trying to force his hand to have not only a hard tenor, but also a hard tone. They're trying to push him. 
And it would be easy, I believe, in fatigue to act so, to get frustrated with the members that are majority-wise moving in the right direction. He's already said how much confidence he has in the majority of the members in the way that they're going. So verse 2, think, think of how he's interacting because it, it helps you as you read through this. I'll stop talking about it and I'll just read it, but think of the backdrop here. I beg you that when I'm present, I may not have to be bold with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So somebody's saying I'm walking according to the flesh. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war that way. Uh-uh. That's not how we operate according to the flesh. We're in the flesh, but we don't operate according to the flesh. For our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh. We have divine power to destroy strongholds, strongest fortifications. We got weapons for that. Verse 5, we destroy what? Arguments. Where do arguments come from? Logic. Where does logic come from? The mind, right? So we operate at this level. It comes from within. Every lofty opinion, these are thoughts, that are raised up against the knowledge of God. So they fight at that level of knowledge and thinking and the inward part, not simply the outward part and spiritual things. And he says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ, every single one of them, not just some of them. There's no part of the mind that is not supposed to be taken by captivated and taken for Christ. Every thought, every single one of them belonged to Christ. And so verse six then, he says, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So there's almost a sense in which he is, is waiting for the faithful church at Corinth to get fortified and stronger before he aids and abets if, if mainly probably he wants them to do it themselves, I would think, with church discipline. But even if he has to help with it, it seems that he's waiting for their obedience to be complete or mature or full, to overflowing, plerao, to overflowing full. He wants their full obedience, or as full as you're going to get, before they address the minority that's causing the disruption and punish that disobedience. And so that's kind of the framing lens for this passage. And you almost have to read it two, three, four times before you start trying to make sense of it because Paul is very autobiographical in this book. I myself entreat you. He's very, in a way, he's not in other places. And the Apostle Paul is, is emotional. He's been at this a while now. He was converted over 20 years ago. He's been planting churches for over 10. He's a missionary. He's got people that he's responsible for, apostolic associates that are helping out like Timothy and Titus and others. And he's deeply concerned, not just for the entrepreneurial church planting that he's done, but for checking on these churches that he's planted. Hence, that's how you get all these letters in the New Testament, you know, to Philippi and to Thessalonica and to Corinth. It's because he's so concerned with it. So this is the this is the, the flow of the letter. And I just want to, by way of review, I promise this to you. I just want to take a very brief moment and I want to look at a couple of maps that I showed you when we started this series. Uh, can you pull, this is the black and white map and all it does, I know you can't see it from there really, but this is Jerusalem way over here. This is the Aegean Sea. So these are the churches at Asia Minor. And so Corinth is right over here. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from over here about a church that's over here. And when he meets with Titus about all the issues, because of weather and autumn, they seem to have rendezvoused in Macedonia up here. So Ephesus, Macedonia, Corinth, down here in the region of Achaia. And the Mediterranean Sea is the big body of water here, but this is all nestled inside 
and around the Aegean Sea. And Corinth was a fairly rich place in some ways. It was a cosmopolitan blend. It was a little Rome. And, and so there was some freedmen that were settled there. It's an interesting place to learn about in terms of history. It had been destroyed when Greece was destroyed. It had, be re, it had been reconstituted 100 years later just before Julius Caesar died. It's an interesting backdrop is the city of Corinth. But we don't really have time to get into that, as interesting as that is, just simply to see what the region looked like geographically. And can we get the next map? just to refresh this from the first sermons. So this is a close-up on the Aegean Sea, so it's easier for you to see Ephesus, where 1 Corinthians was surely written from. He actually wrote four letters to Corinth, which is right over here, and he's deeply troubled, and he winds up somewhere in here in Macedonia meeting with Titus to get a checkup on the church. And so this is, the reason I'm showing you this map is not to make this like Sunday School 2.0. The reason I'm doing this is I want you to see this is about people, places, and things. Like, this is real life. It's not just some over-spiritualized, pie-in-the-sky stuff. It is spiritual, but it is set in history. It's set in geography. So, so take the truth claims of Christ or reject them, but don't live under the illusion and the misinformation that this stuff is not purported to have happened in flesh and blood and time and space because it did. So now, back, back to, the, to the text of Scripture itself. We can ditch the maps now, we've kind of done a little bit of backdrop, and we're looking at chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, and I said you had to read it three or four times. Let me just refresh on the very first verse. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who they say, are humble when face-to-face with you, but when I'm not able to be with you, because of my many responsibilities, obviously, I'm, I'm bold when I'm away. So I'm different when I'm away than when I'm there. And, and what they're trying to get him, it seems, to do is to be hard in his tone. And so the Apostle Paul, speaking the first person with this backdrop to his accusers among the members in the Corinthian church, unnamed accusers, but yet accusers, he says, I'm going to urge you to beg you. But then he offers this disclaimer first before he begs them to be obedient and to show their obedience by punishing the disobedient eventually. He says that, but the disclaimer is this. He says, I am writing in a manner and operating in a manner that is thoroughly Christian, thoroughly Christ-based. I'm differently, to, to put it in modern terms, I am minding my tone with you because of Christ and what he modeled for me in terms of shepherding. Well, you say, well, how, how does that jive? Not only does he say it here, but we can think of the Christ model Think of him modeling patience with you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Think of the patience of Christ. Think of Christ. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, the blessedness of the meek, of the gentle. Think of the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Think of the humility, yes, the humility of Christ as is written freely about Christ in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself and emptied himself even unto death, death on a cross. Think of how reasonable it is for Christ to be humble in the plan of salvation. Think of how he's willing to grant clemency to those who hung him up on a cross to die a vicious Roman death. Do you remember him hanging on the cross? What does he say of his opponents from the cross? He says, forgive them, they know not what they do. He prays for them from the cross. 
This is the man that in the Garden of Gethsemane that could have, and you might argue in the flesh, should have called down legions of angels to do his bidding and to squash those Jewish offenders like a bug. And what does he do? He says, Peter, put your sword up. And he heals the ear. You remember? You remember it for sure. And so his disclaimer here is that he's acting like Christ with this gentle tone. He's saying, it's my opponents that aren't acting like Christ when they make these accusations and they try to force my hand. And he says, then words that get into his exhortation, but he's disclaimering it to try to show that these opponents are not operating in good faith. They're not really trying to build up the church. They're not trying to come to consensus. They're not trying to build on the gospel. It's territorialism in the strongest degree. It's, it's, it's as if he's saying, think with me. Think with me. Later, a philosopher in the Enlightenment would assert that thinking is an argument for existence. In our text today, I think we have an implicit argument that thinking is a precursor for action. I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I do. What I do comes as a result of what I think. So what or better how I think is worthwhile to think about. Is your head spinning yet? It's thinking about thinking. As some have said, it's metacognition. How do I know anything about anything? How do I know if my thoughts are right or wrong tracked? And then how my thoughts, how I think, will lead to either obedient or disobedient action, depending on whether or not my thoughts are right tracked or wrong tracked. The, the good news is for you, if you're confused, here's the good news. If you accept that this, this thinking about thinking is a Christian enterprise, then you're already ahead of the curve. Because texts like this and the entirety of the Bible, including the New, the New Testament, puts an, in its crosshairs the purpose of Christians understanding their war zone battlefield to be in the mind as much as anywhere else. It comes from within. Realize it and you are ahead of the curve. Consider a cross-reference at this point. You may be familiar with it. The book of Romans, perhaps the most spectacular theological treatise in the New Testament. It's just, it is so, it's not just pointed out certain theology. It's like a, a robust systematic theology. And the Apostle Paul writes a letter to a church he hadn't met at Rome. And the first 11 chapters is just theology after theology after theology. It's a beautiful treatise, but it's heady. And then he gets to Romans chapter 12 and he gives a few short chapters to ethical exhortation, as is his habit. He exhorts them ethically, says, you should live like this because of all that theology. You should live like this because of all that theology. And at the pivot point between the theology and the ethics, he says these words in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It sounds remarkably like our text today. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the gentleness of Christ, in this case, by the mercies of God, what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, to present your flesh as a living sacrifice, holy, so holy living with the body, and acceptable to God, integration between the inner part and the outer part, the body and the inner part, which is your spiritual worship. So your spiritual worship is defined this way. He appeals to them by God's mercy to offer themselves this way. And then verse two gets at it. Do not be conformed to this world. Okay, instead be transformed by the what? The renewal of your body. No, it says the renewal of your, the battlefield is in the inward part, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. Well, how are you supposed to test the will of God? 
Obviously, we'll get to this in a moment, but it's by the Word of God. It's by a thorough understanding of the Word of God, both biblical and systematic theology. It's reading it through and listening to sermons and taking it on its own terms. And it says here that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. If we could just park there for just a moment, uh, Skylar, just right there. I want to say a few things about that. We need, to, we need to camp here, and you need to think about this if we're going to think well about thinking. It says what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a rudimentary question, but I just have to ask it. Who knows better, you or God? Okay, that's the, that's the Sunday school answer. You could say Jesus. Who knows better, you or Jesus? Jesus, we all win, right? There's the answer. That's always the Sunday school answer, Jesus. It is so pivotal, though, that you frame that here for the framing of the message because you snap that into view, what is good and acceptable and perfect, the will of God has to come from God. It cannot come from us. Why? Because of our fallen human condition. We are incapable of coming up with absolute unfettered truth by ourselves. We needed God's alien righteousness on us. We needed him to impact us. And if you haven't been impacted by God, you need him to impact your soul that you might have regeneration in life that you might be able to discern. It's not that an unregenerate person can do no good. You're created in the image of God. However marred that is, you can do some good. It's simply to say you can't do ultimate good because you cannot know the will of God without God's presence in your life. You must be born again. The message to Nicodemus in John 3 is the message to us today. Why must you be born again? Well, for a whole plethora of reasons, but one is so that you can discern. And so then let me talk to those of you that have been born again. So then how do you discern? Well, you have to be steeped in a knowledge of God. Well, how do you get steeped in a knowledge of God if God knows better than you? Hey, can you throw that verse from Isaiah 55, just just as a cross-reference from these folks? Uh, Isaiah 55, I think it's 18. God's thoughts are higher than man's thoughts. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Neither are your ways higher than my ways, declares the Lord. Have you got one more? It's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, isn't it? Yeah. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. Write that reference down just to remind you that the thoughts of God are so much more vast than the thoughts of man that you need him if you're going to be able to discern his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, put a pin in this, but how do we know the knowledge of God? Not simply by creation. How do we know the knowledge of God? It's what he's given us. That's what he's given us. So the better you know the word in its context, the better you know the author of the word. It's God's holy word. So this is a precious thing that we have in having this book, but I get a little bit ahead of myself. So let's think back now in 2 Corinthians 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you, and he does it by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, what's he getting at there? I believe he's getting at the, the thought that when we're communicating hard truth, we need to, whenever possible, there are times it's not possible, but when possible, we need to carry it with a soft tone, with a soft tone. David Garland, David Garland wrote the New American Commentary, and he said this about the, this text that we're reading today, and I just want to read it to you because it's better than I can say it. If anyone in Corinth might be misled into thinking that Paul is not strong as his detractors, he wants to set them straight. He packs high-powered divine weapons, but the meekness and gentleness of Christ always govern their use. He packs high-powered weapons, but the meekness and gentleness of Christ always govern 
their use. And here's what else he says. He says, he appeals to the extraordinary power that Jesus employed with an even more extraordinary meekness and mildness. Meekness, moderation, mildness was used in classic literature to describe a calm and soothing disposition that contrasted with rage and savagery. It implies moderation, which permits reconciliation. It was a virtue hailed in leaders who would be slow to anger, willing to accommodate, and capable of showing pity. In keeping with this usage, church historian Josephus used it to refer to rulers who were courteous or of a gentle disposition, benevolent to all. Ancient writers esteemed this virtue because it mellows all relations between citizens, even while it remains implacable toward enemies. It was viewed as a key virtue in those who had power over others. It kept them from the excesses of severity and tyranny and encouraged leniency, thus helping them to win over their adversaries. The mild look or soft voice of the one who is meek presupposes a self-mastery that controls any intemperate feelings from boiling over. This virtue was particularly crucial for a teacher who must be paid and not with the errors of his pupils and the challenges of the detractors. The Old Testament in Greek added a distinct nuance to the word in applying it to those who are submissive to the divine will in Psalm 132. In the New Testament, Jesus presents himself as gentle and humble in heart and explains why his yoke is easy for those who are burdened, harassed, and helpless. Because he treats his disciples as yoke fellows rather than as camels and donkeys to be loaded down. Paul had mentioned his meekness before in his dealings with the Corinthians. We see it other places in the, the text of First and Second Corinthians. He told them that, that they may have had 10,000 guardians in Christ. Those would have been harsh guardians, but not many fathers, not many benevolent fathers. The guardian was a slave child minder who in Greek plays became a comic type caricatured as harsh and recognized by his rod. And Paul asked the Corinthians if they want him to come with a rod. As a, as a schoolmaster, to administer harsh discipline, or to come with a, a spirit of love and meekness as a father, 1 Corinthians 4. He makes it clear that he would much rather come as a gentle and serene father, 1 Corinthians 4.15. His lengthy correspondence with the Corinthians itself reveals that he preferred trying to persuade rather than to rail against them and to coax them into submission with reasoned arguments, logic, rather than to beat them into submission. And so this passage reveals Paul's basic stance toward discipline, and this is important. He always wants to be in a position in which he can be mild toward those he regards as his children. He knows that punishment, harsh or otherwise, can inflict shame and inflame bitterness and has the potential to drive the offender from the faith. And so as their spiritual father, he models this gentleness and meekness from, as from Christ. Gentleness is an essential quality of a church leader, 1 Timothy 3.3. According to James, those who have wisdom from above show gentleness as well as being pure and peaceable, willing to yield and full of mercy, James 3, 17. And so the opponents of Paul are now accusing him of a bad thing for appearing to be humble, for appearing to be patient. And Paul wants to turn that on its head, and he wants to say to them, uh, no, that's actually exactly what Jesus is calling us to be and how to act and how to do. A man by the name of May identifies five kinds of power. Mr. May says leaders can exert five different kinds of power. I'm going to read them to you. Number one, exploitative power uses physical force or the threat of violence and leaves the others with no choice but to comply. Number two, manipulative power uses the covert cunning of a con man rather than a gunman. 
Number three, competitive power employs an I win but you lose strategy. Only one can win and it results in shrinkage of whatever community that it is operating within. Number four, more positively, is nutrient power. It's likened to the parents' care for their children. They exercise their power to do the children good. Problems arise when care becomes smothering and when it insists on doing children good the parents' way, and such methods can create dependency as life gets older. Developing morally wise Christians is like helping a child learn to ride a bicycle. The child needs encouragement, studying, and pointing in the right direction, but eventually the parent must let, let go, and the or the child won't learn how to pedal and steer and balance alone. If Christians are ever to grow in Christ, leaders need to point them in the right directions, but they must let go and let them decide for themselves what the obedience of Christ requires to them. So this is nutrient power. And finally, Mr. May says a fifth thing. He calls it integrative power, integration. It works like this. It works with the other person to enable them to grow both mentally and spiritually. As the Apostle Paul portrays matters in these chapters, we get the picture that his rivals have been exploitative, manipulative, and competitive in their use of power. He insinuates that they enslave, devour, seek to gain control, put on airs, and strike the Corinthians in the face, either metaphorically with insults or literally. And some Corinthians readily submitted to their dominion, mistaking this brazen behavior, this cult of personality, this domination for the apostolic ideal. And Paul's actions rebuffs that. Some Corinthians had submitted, and they interpreted Paul's restraint as wrong, as weak. But con by contrast, Paul embraces his restraint using integrative power, as well as comments about nutrient power, and he looks for the win-win, and he says, we work for you for your joy, verse one, chapter 1, verse 21 says of 2 Corinthians. And we're for the building up, 2 Corinthians 13, 10 says, of his work with the church. And so these chapters illustrate how he used his authority for the good of the community, for the good of the community. And I tell you, just as an aside, but an important aside, I think it would be helpful if we would rethink our mentality of Paul as the harsh apostle. I mean, he sure is going to a lot of trouble to mind his tone if he's such a harsh apostle. You might not agree with his tenor, his truth, but I don't know that the insults about his tone hold much water when we read his letters on balance. I'm just not convinced of that, especially from this study. So let's look at the text afresh now in verse 2 and following. Here's what this says. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, I beg you that when I'm present, I won't have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. I don't want to have to do that. I want to have a soft tone. These that are pushing me to have a hard tone, they have an agenda, and so I don't want to do that. I want you to understand that not only why I don't want to do that, but what you can do to keep me from having to act that way. So then now, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh... We aren't waging war according to the flesh. The, the, my detractors are right. We are in this body. It's a treasure in a jar of clay. But think about how much I've written to you already. This is my fourth letter. Think about what a good shepherd looks like. Think about the witness of Christ if you can't get past me. As meek and gentle. Think about how he led. Think about how he didn't call down legions of angels to instantly zap people that didn't get it. Think about it and, and consider my actions as possibly having more merit than my detractors are asserting. 
And, and he says here, though we walk in the flesh, verse 3, we're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's interesting, isn't it? Verse 4. Our weapons of warfare, internally, they're not of the flesh. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse 5. Well, where are these strongholds? Well, they're arguments. They're ways of thinking. Remember thinking about thinking? They're ways of thinking. So we destroy arguments and we destroy lofty opinions, lofty logic. We destroy pride. When, especially when these are obviously raised against the knowledge of God. When, when, when lofty opinions are raised, when argumentation, lines of thinking are raised against the knowledge of God, we take those thoughts captive that we might obey Christ because we understand that our actions are precipitated by our thinking. There can even be a dissonance between how we act and what we say. See, sometimes we say things that are good, and then we don't act in accordance with it. And then sometimes we do things that are good, but we didn't precede it with statements. You know, wisdom is proved right by her actions. That, that's true enough. Uh, it, it is no faith at all that says, I have faith, but then doesn't act. But at the same time, sometimes we can look at someone's actions, and it speaks a more clarifying truth than even their words because of their pain, because of their situation. We have to look at both of them because our words and our deeds come from our brains, our minds, our inner part, which, having been regenerated by the Spirit, we're on the right track. We hopefully have now identified where the battlefield is, but it is a battle. It's a war zone. This is why Paul, in his ethical exhortations, begins in Romans, in 2 Corinthians at least, he begins at the level of the mind. Think about it. He says, I entreat you, don't be transformed to the pattern of the world, or don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your... It's how he operates when he talks to believers. He wants us to be framing. It's almost like oxygen. We're breathing. This is where we have to get our thinking in line with God's Word. We have to take the hard truths of the Word and let them shape our thinking and our patterns and our grids, our, our worldview is the fancy term for this. Our worldview needs to be thoroughly biblical instead of, of thoroughly whatever I caught out there somewhere. And so as you're bringing in knowledge of the Word of God and you're understanding it, that's going to start bumping up against your perception of how you view the world. And it's going to bump, and it's going to bump, and it's going to bump, and you're going to kick, and you're going to thrash, and it's going to bump, and it's going to bump, and it's going to bump. And the idea there is, is as it's bumping is for you, instead of just simply to sort of despise the friction, is for you to say, oh, the Apostle Paul told us it was going to be like this. Oh, Jesus told us the goal was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all the inward part. Oh, this is how it was going to be. And let me just tell you, this is not easy. The Lord does a work in your life for you to become a believer. No doubt about it. And He empowers you. No doubt about it. And the Lord holds us fast. No doubt about it. In our sanctification, we are running up against some really hard paradigms of thought, some ways of thinking that are deep, deep, deep embedded. And, and that's why he can talk about that battlefield of your mind in terms of war. Because if you use the weapons of the flesh, you will never see success rates in conquering issues that are deep-seated in the thinking of God's people.
You just won't. And so you say, well, what hope do we have? Well, the hope that you have is to fight the battle using the effective weapons that the Spirit of the living God has left for you. And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, in the age of the church, in this time in which we live, the battle is not fought with physical swords, but with the sword of the Lord. In this time, the battle is not fought with, fought with heads of state and diplomats. The battle is fought with words collectively, corporately, to our Heavenly Father, and individually during our private worship times and even in our family worship times where we're calling out to the Father. In other words, the weaponry that we have is divinely inspired power. You have been equipped for every good work and deed, but you will not get where you want with bitterness, complaint, worldly argumentation, angling, agendas of personal nature that don't have the building up of the body in mind. You won't get where you want to get. See, this is the problem. Sometimes, oftentimes, we are duped as believers in covenant community into engaging that there is a spiritual war to be fought, but then practically speaking, fighting that war on the terms of the world instead of the terms of the Lord. It is as simple of an application as it can be, but the profundity of you actually doing it, well, frankly, there's just some distance between what I know I'm supposed to do and actually doing it. For you and for me, right? Listen to what it says in verses 4 and 5 in this light of this. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but our weapons have, they have divine power to destroy strongholds. The most deeply ingrained fortify, fortifications in our thinking can be destroyed by the weapons that have been given divine, that God's given to us in divine power. So verse 5, we destroy arguments and lofty opinions. So this weaponry is to destroy thinking and, and logic that is based against the knowledge of God, that's raised up against it. And we, as authentic believers, take every thought captive to obey Christ to get our thinking in line with the knowledge of God. And we're ready to punish every obedience, verse 6. But there's this patience with the complete maturity, with the totality, with the with the maturity of the saints. There's this soft tone with hard truth for the good of the saints. It's, it's not just gunslinging. It's not just gunslinging. I was uh, talking with some of our church leaders this week about um, the Word of God, and I honestly don't remember which one it was, but we were talking about the, the Old Testament concept of manna from heaven, and we were we were being reminded of how Jesus played off of that metaphor when he was tempted and when he was doing battle with the devil. It's recorded in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And you remember the devil's trying to get Jesus to, to exercise his power on the devil's terms. Do you remember, some of you, if you're newer with us, you may not. You could write it down. It's Matthew chapter 4. It's the first 11 verses. And Jesus refer, refuses to operate exercising his power on the devil's terms. And the devil takes him to a high place from his hunger and fatigue and temptation, tries to get him to sin. Of course, Jesus doesn't sin. He's the only man that's ever not sinned. He's perfect. And Jesus, in his refutation of Satan, is fortified by his knowledge of the word. He quotes Deuteronomy three times. And one of the citations he quotes is that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And, and you probably are getting some cues there for the need to be in the Word of God, right? But I think it goes even deeper, as we were talking about this this week. It goes even deeper than just you need to be in the Word of God. That's true. You do. But it speaks to, as the old song says, I need thee every hour 
It speaks to that. Why? Because bread or manna, the Greek word artas, the concept is rooted in the Exodus, and bread or manna is the life-giving, give us this day our daily bread. It is, it is a euphemism for all of food, for all of nourishment. And when the children of God were in the desert and they were complaining and they were really not availing themselves to divine power so much as their own complaints and angling, and they came to Moses and they said, we had better food in Egypt than we've got out here, what happened? You can read in Exodus about this. God gave them manna from heaven, did he not? But this is actually the explication of what happened. We read this some weeks ago in here in one of our services. Everybody could gather enough for the day. But if they gathered for more than just the day, it would rot. And everybody had enough so that nobody had any lack, but nobody got to hold stuff over unless the Sabbath day was the next day. Differently, what was being instilled in God's people? I need you every day. I need you for food every day. I need you for food every day. I need you for food every day. There's no stockpiling of the word in such a way that we don't need more of it every day, right? I mean, we're not going to die if we fast from food for a day or two. I don't mean to intimate that. I just mean God has built into our rhythms the need to eat. And spiritually speaking, he's built into our rhythms the need to, to eat. And so today truly is a sort of an encouragement for you to understand with sobriety and freshness that this battle that you're fighting spiritually, you have no weapons aside from the sword of the Lord. You have no divine power aside from his work in you, aside from praying, prayer and praying the word. This is our weaponry. So if you are frustrated in your Christian life, if you are frustrated in your Christian life, if you're bothered with where you are in it, I want to encourage you this morning that the way through that frustration in your Christian life is not simply to bloviate about it. It's not simply to talk about it. The way through that frustration truly in this war is word and prayer. At one point in the Gospels, Jesus says that some kinds of hardships only come out with fasting and prayer. When I'm weak, he's strong. So it's not a one plus one equals two. You can't pigeonhole God. You can't stockpile his truths for a rainy day in such a way that you don't need the every hour. We need them. And today, for me, in reading this, is a sobering reminder of this war that we're in internally and how much we need, not, not even we need God to fight the war, but we need God's terms of engagement to fight the war. Lest we come to the wrong kind of blows. It's not just about demolition either of thoughts and ideas. It's about building up. I told you that the, the end of the sermon was, was going to be about building up based on what God's doing. So we have, with, with this hard truth, we have a soft tenor, or a soft tone, a hard tenor, but it's all for the building up the house of God. We have to have truth. We have truth. But we're soft in administering it for the upbuilding of the house of God, to build it up so that we're built up in every way, Christ. I think that is the point of Corinthians, is the unity of the church being built up in Christ. He is the master architect. We are not our own master architects. And the war within is not just about demolishing things, but about being built up. I know it's scary, but destroying disobediences in our thinking is freeing.
and God does that for us. I want to conclude today by reading a, a cross-reference of Scripture, the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Lest you feel heavied by this text today, because it is an intense text. I feel heavied by it. Feel feel heavied by the text. This is just what it says. Uh, it, it's that classic text, come to me and I will give you rest, Jesus says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me, Jesus said, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Ask the Son. Ask the Son. Call upon the Son. Ask the Father to reveal the Son to you. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn, learn from me. For I'm gentle, lowly in heart. And guess what, folks? After all the hardships, you will discover a fresh rest for your souls. What does Jesus say? His yoke, his way is easy. His burden is light. Let us pray. God, in our deportment with one another, help us to have a soft tone, especially when our tenor is hard for the uplifting always and upbuilding of your house. And Lord, help us to be strong enough that when disobedience has to be punished, that it can be done from a strong core, from a strong core of believers that are walking in your word and that know what must be done in order to maintain obedience and faithfulness to you. We need you or we will make a mess of the applications of the beautiful truths that you have granted us. And I thank you today for giving us a text that reminds us of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd now like to invite our ushers to come to collect our offerings and our prayer requests, tear-offs, as we continue to meditate on the words of the Lord that he's granted us today to consider. And we just ask the Lord to bless these offerings and the prayer requests as well. You men may go ahead and please receive the offerings at this time. Thank you. I officiated a funeral for the family of Dorothy Walker this week, 83 years old. I'd like to ask you to remember them in prayer. I'm picking up an inmate that's reentering into society tomorrow from having been in jail for most of his adult life. It's 30-year-old Posey County native Randall Tuck. I'd like to ask for your prayers for him and our ministry to him. If you'd like to help out with him with the needs that he has, uh, you can see me after church.
Um, I'd like for you to continue in prayer for the students that are going to camp. And if you haven't already considered it, I hope you'll consider staying today to make a donation to help them get to camp. They're going to feed you pulled pork sandwiches and whatnot in a life center right after we conclude uh, today. And uh, so you can be you can be helping out with that if you would would like to do so. All you have to do is stay to eat. Got to eat anyway, right? So, uh, Brother Rusty, if you don't care, our service leader today, he's going to come and, and give us our benediction with reading Scripture. And let's stand for that benediction before we go. Our benediction of thanksgiving will come from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which... You can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Go in peace.